Well, here we are at the last message from the series based on the key theological threads which shape the way that we do ministry here at Restoration Church. This is what we've covered so far, story, personal, relational worshippers, dependence, growing up, family, practical theology. There's eight of these. It uh, doesn't mean that there aren't others that uh, uh, are important. There's lots of other theological threads that are not mentioned here, but these are key in understanding the way that we do ministry here. And I want to talk about uh, the last one today. And uh, I want to start by uh, looking at our mission statement. Uh, Restoring true humanity. Implicit in this statement are a few things. That it's possible to be truly human. That humanity has a problem. And that there's a way to restore people. We've covered all of these at some point in the series so far. And we'll touch on them a little as we go today, but I want to ask you a key question to kick us off this morning. I'm keen for you to think about this for a bit. Uh, you don't have to call an answer out, but uh, uh, what is the arch enemy of personal restoration? If uh, this church is about restoring true humanity, what's the arch enemy of personal restoration? Now, there may be many obstacles to restoring humanity, but if you had to pick one, which one would you go for? Maybe you'd go for sin. But I'd, I'd probably argue a little that uh, sin is what dehumanises us, not something that stops us being restored. And I mean, there's a sense in which continued sin can complicate the process of being restored, absolutely. What gets in the way of the restorative process? You've been around for these eight, you would have heard me talk about uh, how restoration comes from our union and communion with Jesus. It comes from us being joined to him and us being in deep friendship with him, in a deep relationship with him, you know, personally very close to him. And so I could ask the question another way, what stops us from being personally close to God? What's opposed to it? If you've been around this church long enough, you've heard this one. It's shame. That's what it is. Shame. Uh, Ed Walsh has a very helpful definition, with, which many of you may have heard me read before. Shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable. Because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. You're disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human, or you're associated with something less than human, and there are witnesses. It's a really helpful definition of shame. Uh, some of you would know very clearly that you have a shame problem. And others, maybe you don't think you have that much of a problem with shame. But I want to say to you this morning that if you've got a sin problem, you've got a shame problem. <laughs> they go together and they're inseparable. If you live in a sinful world, you have a shame problem. If you have one, you have the other. And for some people, it doesn't take very much convincing. It's a live issue. They see it. They see shame. They feel unacceptable. But for others, they don't see it as much. Perhaps they have a talent that covers it over. But they've been hiding so long, the true then, that they can't see it so well. They eventually ended up hiding from themselves. Or well, there's a myriad of other reasons. I want you to know something, that when it comes to shame, uh, there's some fingerprints. And here's some fingerprints where you can kind of pick up that shame is going on. Yeah, if you ever think, I'm not good enough. 
Oh, this one, I've thought this one, I am the worst. And you could talk about having low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is shame. That's what it is. Think you're a loser. Unclean. Worthless. An idiot. Dirty. A mess. Unforgivable. Unacceptable. Ever thought those? That's shame. When I take you on a quick tour of uh, Genesis and we... We, we go to Genesis, I go to Genesis a lot in the first three chapters and the reason why we go there is because we're talking about how to be truly human and there once was a time where we were. So it makes sense that we go back there again. If we go back to Genesis 1, we know this scripture. If you've been at the church here, we know this scripture that God created humanity in his image. And I, wanna, I want you to hear me say this today, humanity is just not another animal. We're not. We are, the Bible teaches that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. That's what it teaches. We are different to every single other animal. Don't let, don't let naturalistic believers persuade you otherwise. We are made in God's image. And one of the things that we've looked at about being made in God's image is we have the capacity to do relationship with God. No other animal has that. That's what it means. We have this relational, relationality in us to do that. And so what we see in Genesis 1 is this, this blockbuster kind of account of creation, you know, CGI, it's, it's all kind of going off, crazy stuff's happening. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2 and it's this up close and personal version of creation. There's a retelling and God's planting a garden and he's, and he's giving Adam, he might be a bit uncomfortable with this, but he's giving Adam the, the kiss of life in a sense. That's the sense of it, that God breathes into Adam. He plants this garden, he creates a man and he, and he puts Adam in it and this warning comes out. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it and the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it you will certainly die. And death comes into the world. And the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, tells the story of humanity turning their backs on God. What is death? Death is a result of sin. You know, you can look at that and you go, that's a harsh rule. And it's like, well, okay, stop for a minute and think about the fact that God is the one in whom is life. If you walk away from God, you walk away from life and you walk toward death. It's very straightforward. You know, in our lives this week in those moments where we have walked away from God we have walked away from life and you can't walk away from life and embrace death and complain about it in one sense it's like it's logical <laughs> that's what happens you know but if you think about death what is death well death is the reversal of God's good creation. And what God's saying here is if you walk away from me, the pinnacle of God's creation, those made in the image of God, they're going to unravel. Death is going to break them down. And it looks like from what God's saying here, we probably might have expected they were going to spontaneously combust. They were just going to die on the spot when they ate from the fruit of the tree. But they didn't. But that didn't mean death didn't show up. Death came in, but I'll tell you what it was. It was death by a thousand cuts. That's what it was. And that's the world that we live in at the moment. You see, 
break your connection with the one who is life and death gets to work disintegrating you. It comes at you. Now, what I, uh, I want you to notice something in the Genesis narrative that happens uh, immediately after Adam and Eve have separated themselves from God, have disconnected from the one who is, is life. We all know the story pretty well. They, they hide. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were open after they disobeyed God and ate the fruit of the tree and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's going on here? This is classic shame. You might have heard it said that guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about who you are. Adam and Eve have done something wrong, but they're actually their person is unacceptable now. And what do they do? They hide. <laughs> and... And in one sense, it makes sense, right? Because when you're unacceptable and you've done the wrong thing, hiding seems like a pretty good option. But the problem here is that it's actually a personal relationship with God that made them truly human. And what they're doing is they're shutting down to each other and they're shutting down to one another. Another way that the Bible kind of cashes out the process, the natural process of relationship happening naturally is knowing and being known. You see, before the fall, knowing and being known was free-flowing. It was happening horizontally between Adam and Eve and vertically between them and God. Have a look at the last verse on the screen at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. If you keep tracking through the scriptures, you'll realize that from this point on, whenever someone's naked, it's about shame. Not back then. You see the, the idea of nakedness, physical nakedness, and we'll probably come back to this in the sex series, right? Because what are they covering up? They're covering up their genitals. That's what they're doing. And they're not just hiding from God in the bushes. They're hiding from each other behind the fig leaves. You know, wherever... Shame is operating. You can see the usual suspects as fear, as hiding, and people are isolated from one another. Whenever anyone sins, shame shows up. And it doesn't wait for an invitation. It just comes. And I'll tell you something. You might go, oh, I think I can handle that. And it's like, maybe you can, right? But wait till you sin or you get something wrong publicly. That's your test. That's your test. And there's more eyes watching you. What does God do? What does God do with Adam and Eve? They're isolated. They're afraid. They're hiding. He gently draws them out of hiding. Catches them off guard, I think. He addresses the problem and then he says this to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's this promise in amongst the disaster that someone will come and crush the serpent and make things right again one day. And that person was Jesus. He came when we read the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts, we just see him reversing sin and death all over the joint. Wherever he goes, sin and death gets reversed. And in the end, he goes and he dies on a Roman cross. And in that act, he offered restoration to everyone. 
So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you haven't given your life to Jesus, you can't say that it's not on offer to you. Restoration is on offer to you. It's on offer to everyone in this room. It's a peculiar kind of restoration because we are are tarred with the individualistic Western brush, aren't we? It's like, okay, give me what I need and I'll go home and sit in my room and do it. Tell me how to get restored. Give me the four-point plan. And I'll tell you something, God does not... Paul Tripp says this, he says, God does not give people a system of redemption, he gives them a redeemer. So we'll give you some practical application, but at the end of the day, you know what you need is you actually need a personal restorer. That's what you need. Restoration is not something, for you to become the person that God made you to be, the person that you desperately want to be, does not happen independently. You know that from Genesis 1. Being made in God's image means that we are hardwired to him and you cannot be who God has made you to be without him. It just won't happen. And so when you repent of your sins, when you turn from your sins and you're walking away from life and you trust in Jesus, ask him to forgive you, you know what he does is he he joins you to himself. You get united to him. And... um, the boundary between you and he blurs. I remember uh, when I did my uh, manual arts training down at um, design and tech training uh, down at uh, Sydney University. Uh, There was one day where they said to us, we're working with Perspex, uh, plastic, and they said, right, there's two different ways that you can join plastic together. And uh, so the first one's this, you get the two pieces of plastic, put a layer of glue in between, and you put them together. And then you have three materials, a piece of plastic, glue, and a piece of plastic. Does that make sense? I said there's another way that you can do it with Perspex, is you can get a chemical and put it on the surface of the plastic and put it on the other surface of the other plastic and then put them together. And what it actually does is it melts the surface of the plastic so that when you put them together, they actually become the one piece. That's what Jesus does when you turn to him, right? It's not you and he as two separate entities anymore. It's it's union. That's what it is. You're actually united and the boundaries between you have blurred. That's the start of our restoration. If Jesus didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to be restored. It's the foundation of our restoration. If you... If you want to be restored today and you don't know Jesus, you need to turn to him and be joined to him. That's the start. That's the start. The rest of it, honestly, is just playing games with finer, smaller things. The restoration we need is very, very deep. But I'll tell you something, it is not the end of the restoration. When you get joined to Jesus, it's actually just the start. It's a bit like a marriage, right? 9th of December, year 2000, Peter and Angela got married. We made promises to each other and the minister declared to everyone, two have become one. (laughs) Anyone who's been married knows that's not the end of two becoming one. Right? It is true. It's the start 
of two becoming one. And so what does a married couple need to do? Well, a married couple needs to live into two becoming one. And we're one way more now than what we used to be. And everyone who's been married, it's, it's, when, it, when it runs properly, that's how it works. You, you, get, you get closer and you're more one together. Yes, things can come in and mess things up and that's why it's so deeply traumatic and difficult. And I'm not saying, like, if you're sitting there and you go, I don't have a marriage like that. It's like, well, come and talk to me and let's see what we can do to help out. Okay, because that's the kind of thing that God has in mind. But you get the idea, right? There's the union in a marriage and then the communion, the personal relationship. And in your relationship with God, there's the coming to faith, which is like the marriage ceremony, and then the communion, the getting more the growing in personal closeness with God. So I want want you to hear me on this. Your progressive restoration comes from getting progressively nearer to God. There's a great... If you're into heavy theology, there's a great book on... um, Biblical theological book on on the book of Leviticus, which you you all love that, right? Leviticus, you just go, that rocks. It's a great book, but... One of the things is, I can put, put you onto a later, but one of the terms that the guy in this biblical theological book actually says is he says, progressive sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming more like God, he, he uses a term, it's actually progressive nearness. That's what it is. So over your life, you're meant to be getting progressively nearer to God. And as you get progressively nearer to God, you'll be restored. See how it works. Now, this may be a tad jarring, but can anyone see the problem here? Remember I was talking about shame? Shame is a blocker. If the means by which you get restored is personal relationship with God and shame makes you hide, you see where I'm going? Shame is going to be your arch enemy for you being restored. It blocks the very mechanism through which restoration comes to people. You know, people who are feeling shame feel like they need to hide, that they're unworthy of anything good, that they're a special case, that they're on their own, that they they don't deserve any help. See the problem? Wherever shame is happening, restoration isn't. (laughs) Just sum it up with that. Wherever shame is happening, restoration isn't. Now, some of you may be thinking about the cross at this point, Jesus dying on the cross, and you're probably thinking, didn't Jesus bear our shame? And I'd say, yes, he did. And didn't Jesus despise shame on the cross? And I'd say, yes, he did. And and didn't Jesus cover us up and, and make us clean and acceptable to him? And I'd say, yes, he does. And you'd say, hasn't he made us holy um, and new rather than than dirty and used, and and it's like, yeah, like he did that. And I would say to you, so why do we still feel shame? Why can't we just sit down and recite all of the things which are true about who we are in Jesus and be okay? Surely that would work. But it doesn't. There's a reason for that. 
And it's because shame is a very personal problem. And personal problems need personally rich solutions. Shame is a deeply personal problem which requires a deeply personal resolution. If you want an example of this, then you can't go past the story in Luke about the woman with the flow of blood. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, a synagogue leader, to heal his sick daughter, and this happens. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him, touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Now, she is bleeding, and it isn't just any kind of bleeding. It's the kind of bleeding which makes her unclean. You see, in the, uh, the book of Leviticus, there were, there were rules about what you made, made you clean and unclean. Shame, in a sense, was institutionalized. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It was just the reality. There were things that you would do that would, that would declare that you were unclean. It's very clear. We, we saw this in Nepal. <laughs> you know, we, um, I was talking to a pastor over there. And um, he said that um, his caste was the highest caste. And whenever a lower caste, he talked about this particular caste, whenever this particular caste came to their house, the mum would give them food, but they'd have to eat outside. And at the end, they'd have to wash their own dishes. And the mum and the dad and the kids wouldn't touch the dishes until they were dry. It's, it's a shame on a structure. And in Leviticus, it, it says some things about this woman. And I want to read these to you. They're, they're a tad confronting, but they're in the Bible, right? When a woman has her regular flow of blood, this is Leviticus 15, 19 to 23, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during her, during her period will be unclean. And anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean until evening. Whether it is the bed or anything she was sitting on, when anyone touches it, they will be unclean till evening. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years. Don't touch me for 12 years. Don't sit on the chair that I just sat on for 12 years. Ah, for 12 years. Now, this is a little awkward. And what's awkward about it is what Jesus does. And, you know, if you don't know Jesus very well, Jesus does some things that make people awkward. But they're always good. They're always good. So what happens here is this woman comes up to Jesus and sneaks in and gets a touch on Jesus. And to her surprise, I reckon, massive surprise, the process works backwards. Instead of Jesus getting unclean, she ends up getting clean. 
And that's actually how it works. You see it the whole way through the Gospels. You see these, these times where Jesus touches a leper, the unclean people, and instead of them passing their uncleanness onto him, his cleanness gets passed onto them. The whole thing gets reversed. It's just a fulfillment of the promise back in Genesis chapter 3. Look at what he does. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, this is a little awkward, right? You would think that someone who had felt shame and by her culture had been declared unclean for so long, who got her healing that Jesus would just let it go, wouldn't he? She gets her touch on him and, and he's like, he's going to let it go. It's like, daughter, you've, you've had enough, <laughs> right? Uh, you've had enough of that. But he doesn't. And do you know why he doesn't? He doesn't because he's interested in much deeper restoration than what she's after. The restoration she wants is great, but he's going way further than that. He's not just going to deal with her physicality. He's going to deal with her person. And so he calls her out. <laughs> Who is it? Who did that? Because she's been out for so long and Jesus wants her in. <laughs> All right? And if, if she just gets a healing and she slinks away and no one ever knows and she doesn't even know whether Jesus knows about it, she's going to stay out, at least in her head. And he calls her the most sublime thing. Did you see that at the end? Daughter. That's pretty good. <laughs> Jesus called you daughter. You'd be really happy, wouldn't you? Unless you're a man and then you want to be called son. If he called you daughter and he called you or son, that would mean something, wouldn't it? All of a sudden you're in in the most outrageous way. True. She was out in the most powerful way, and now she's in. How'd that happen? Well, Jesus came close to her. She touched him, that was the first bit, and then he pulled her closer. And it looked a little harmful, but it was exactly what this lady needed. <coughs> Jesus was up to something great. You see, shame isolates you and stops people coming close to you. It's all part of the system for this woman. And restoration always happens when Jesus comes close. But here's the catch. Jesus is gone now. He's still here by his spirit living in each one of us. It's a very powerful reality for those of us who love him. But, and he is very close to us. But in terms of a physical Jesus, well, he left. But you know what's really cool is um, we see in the scriptures that there's a whole bunch of this responsibility for being Jesus in a much smaller way. But Jesus has this, this design where he wants to use us to take him to each other. There's this design 
that other people would come close to you and be his representative to you. That's, that's what we see in Scripture. You know, it's, you know we, um, <laughs> when I talked about uh, priests on uh, being dependent, I talked about how we're dependent on other people. We absolutely are dependent upon other people. Uh, we are designed to need other people and, and, um, and them to need you. Priest on that one. It's absolutely true, but here's the reality is that there's a bunch of things about God that God calls us to incarnate to each other in relationship. Other people are a critical part of your restoration. And you might sit there and you go, oh, I've got one person. I just go, that's not enough. <laughs> you need more than one person who's actually going to know you to be able to show you what God's heart is for you. You know, the, the truth in Scripture about what God, what God does with our shame is absolutely stunning. But often it leaves us sitting in our bedrooms at home reciting verses or lists about who we are in Christ. And it's not a very personal resolution. And shame is a personal problem that needs a personal resolution. Someone, a person, actually needs to get in your space. That's what Jesus did with the woman with the flow of blood. You know, there's this great privilege that we have to live out some grand theological truths in front of one another so that we understand them in a way that we've never understood them before. I want to give you a couple of examples. One of them's got nothing to do with shame. The second one's got heaps to do with it. You might know this verse in Colossians 1.24. Paul says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions on the cross? Nothing. In one sense, absolutely nothing. In another sense, a personal display of someone suffering for someone else's good right in front of them. There's all these people that never got to stand there. None of us got to stand there and watch Jesus be crucified on the cross. But when another Christian suffers and goes through affliction so that you would know about Jesus and you would be loved and you would know that you're forgiven, you're filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You see that? It's a grand theological truth that you get to put on display by the way that you live. Here's another one. This one has all sorts of things to do with shame. This is Jesus. We'll be covering this soon in John when we get back into it next year. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How does Jesus love us? Gets close. He looks at us and sees our mess. He doesn't deny it. He comes really close. The name given to uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. And he self-sacrificially gives himself for our good. This is, this is the way he's loved us. And I love it how Jesus does this. He goes, right, here's what I've done. Just go and do it. Just go. Okay. You know, when, um, when someone is feeling shame and thinks they're the worst and they're an absolute 
wreck. And in some senses, they are. They need someone to come along who can stay with them, see them, and just go, yeah, no, I see that. I'm not going anyway. I love you at your worst. Isn't that the way that Jesus loves us? I love you at your worst, and I'm staying with you. And you know, when, um, when we do that to each other, when we're at our worst, and, and we, we take the, the massive risk to let someone know us at our worst, and the other person doesn't walk away, or shy away, or wince, but they go, is that it? We're not going anywhere. It's like, is that it? In that moment, a light might turn on, and you might actually think, huh, if that's the way that they love me, then God must love me like that too. And I'll tell you something, uh, that, is a, that will be a good moment. And I'm sure it's happened already. We just want that to happen more and more, right? Because where shame is happening, restoration isn't. It's a great um, section out of one of C.S. Lewis's books. I'm just going to read it and then give you a couple of practical uh, go-tos. One of Lewis's, he was in a group with some, uh, some guys and one of them died. And, and his assumption was that with one of them dying, he's going to get to know more of his friend because they'd have more time. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead... I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically, I think that should be Charles' joke, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. He goes on, Friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. Listen to this. For every soul... Seeing God in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we, sh we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. It's good, right? Now, all this might sound great, and, uh, and you might be keen to explore it, uh, but I want to say this to you. <laughs> if shame and sin go together and all of us are going to have indwelling sin until the day that we die, you need to be in a context where knowing and being known can happen and people can love, love you and show you the love of Christ and his heart for you to make that shame dispel. You know, you're going to commit new sins, which you need to confess to one another. You're going to need to pray for each other. And, and like I said, you're going to generate shame that's going to need to be interrupted by each other. It needs to be sent on its way. And you need more than one or two. This is why groups in Restoration Church are a really, really important part of who we are. I remember... Um, sitting in the car with someone a number of years ago. And we were talking about this whole thing about uh, knowing and being known and, 
And, and a question really that we're talking about was like, who are you really? And, and who actually knows who you really are? And um, you know what she said to me? She said, um, <laughs> she goes, do you think it's all right if it's only your husband that knows the real you? What would you say? I said, well, who are your kids relating to? Who's that? You know, if only one person knows the real you, it won't be enough for your restoration. It's just not going to be enough. It's not the way God designed it to work. That's why at the church here, we talk about being in community groups. Right? Because if we're going to be restored, we're going to need people to be in our personal space. Right? And bringing Jesus really close to us. We're going to need to be in a space where we can ongoingly know and be known by one another. So, you need to sign up. <laughs> right? You need to sign up. And like, I know it's a terrible time of year. Right? And I'm not saying anything even has to happen between now and the end of the year. But here's, here's what I'm saying. And you don't, you don't have to answer this or put your hand up, right? Here's my first question. Who wants to be restored? Right? That's the first question. The second question is, now what context are you going to get in that's going to help that to happen? All right? And you go, oh, I'm really busy. It's like, okay, well, all right, you're just too busy to be restored then. You just go, well, I wasn't saying that. I'd like restoration to come my way. I'd like to kind of um, become the person that God's made me to be, and, but I'm just really busy. It's like, okay, well, you're too busy to be restored then. Why are we talking about this now? Because you need to think about how to structure it into your life. And build it into your life and be in a context where people know you and you know them and you bring Jesus to one another. I'm not rousing on you, but don't come up to me and say, I'm going to rouse here for a sec. <laughs> Do not come up to me and say, I want to be restored, but I don't have time to be in relationship with people because I'll say to you, no, you don't. You don't. You want to do other things more. It goes back to the practical theology stuff I was talking about last week. That's what you really want to do. You want to make money or you want to run something or you want to do this, that and the other thing. And I'll tell you something, you don't want your own personal restoration. And you might, you might go, well, I think I can make my life go pretty well. You know, I think I can cope without having God that close. And I just go, well, Jesus didn't come to help people to cope. All right? Jesus didn't say, I have come that they may cope. <laughs> right? He came that they might have life and have life abundantly. Right? I'm almost finished rousing on you. So don't be lame about it. Don't be lame about it. And you start, all right, this is the shepherding part of this pastor coming out right now, right? You start praying about how you're going to change your life so that you can be in community where people can bring Jesus to you and you can be restored because you better be restored more at this time next year than what you are right now. Amen? Because it's on offer. It's on offer. Okay, the rouse is over. That's community groups. Um, the other one, some of you go, be careful with this one. But I'll tell you something, uh, is restore groups. 
This is a, uh, a deep dive in knowing and being known. goes for, well, next year it's going to go for a bit shorter. I think it's about nine weeks next year. <laughs> it's where you gather in gendered groups and just do a really deep dive into stuff that forms who you are as a person and you see you bring God into that space and restoration happens and we bring Jesus really close and it's awesome. We use the... Um, the book that I've written, which, by the way, if you want to read some more stuff about shame, this has not been a big treatment of shame, but if you want to read some more stuff about it, there's copies of it over there. They're 20 bucks a pop, 5 bucks cheaper than... Actually, seven ninety eight cheaper than you can buy in Coorong in Toowoomba at the moment. All right, just punch it into the uh, iPad over there and you can take one. If you steal it, Jesus knows. All right? <laughs> but here's the bottom line. Community groups, restore groups... We will be running Restore Groups in the church in the first quarter next year. Okay, so keep your eyes out for that because that's one way you can be restored. But I'll tell you something, if you do Restore Groups and you're not in a regular kind of pattern of being with people in community, it's probably going to evaporate most of what happens in Restore Groups. Okay? So the bottom line is you want to do both. And I'm not saying you have to do both at the same time. If you're in a community group and you want to do restore groups, just step out of your community group for nine weeks and that can be your community for uh, nine, works, nine weeks and you can dive into some, some, uh, some deep stuff.